Good morning. Good morning. Oh, how is that? Always a blessing, you guys, to be here with you, to spend some time hearing from the Lord and His Word, and uh, really just enjoying the blessing of His presence and um, the fellowship of one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's always good. So I want to welcome uh, those of you who are newer. I, I see some newer faces. Uh, just pray that the Lord ministers to you as you gather here with us today. And uh, looking forward to all that God has. also want to welcome those who are streaming online and are unable to make it in person today. We pray that the Lord ministers to you uh, via this um, technology as well. Okay? Well, before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class, as well as the Bible English class. We'll let them get going as well. And as they make their way out, will the rest of you please open up your Bibles and make your way to chapter 2 of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 2 in a message that I entitled, The Model Ministers. In the opening of chapter 2, Paul seemed to be addressing some accusations about him and his companions and their ministry. Based upon what Paul wrote, it seemed as if the church in Thessalonica was facing a lot of public backlash for their faith in God. Many people were coming against them and trying to discredit Paul and the message that they had received from him. Again, based upon what Paul wrote, it seemed as if there were people questioning Paul's motives and Paul's message and Paul's methods. People questioned his motives and seemed to suggest that Paul and his companions were nothing more than religious charlatans that had come through town in order to take from them, to get what they could from the people of Thessalonica and then move on to the next city in order to swindle them out of whatever they could in the next place. They questioned his message. Yea, Paul preached a message that was quite contrary to what most in Thessalonica were used to. The Gentile Greeks believed in many different gods, but Paul preached a message about the one true and living God. The Jews in Thessalonica, they believed in the one true and living God, but they rejected the message of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as their long-awaited Messiah. The message that Paul preached was a message of grace, something that's foreign really to both the Greeks and uh, the Jews. They questioned his methods. Uh, people were accusing Paul of simply being a man-pleaser, of telling people just something that they wanted to hear. But Paul refuted such sentiments, affirming that his goal all along was to please the Lord alone and how he didn't shy away from telling them the more challenging and difficult things. And in all that they did, Paul and his companions, they were excellent examples to the church there in Thessalonica. They were truly model ministers to them. Now this week, we pick up the continued account in chapter 2 as we see Paul transition away from defending himself and his ministry to speaking about his heart for the church in Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica was going through some difficulties. Okay, they were a, a young church, a, a new church, <clears throat> and they didn't have a lot of spiritual leadership and mentorship after Paul and his companions were run out of town. They were experiencing persecutions and sufferings because of their new faith in Christ. People were questioning them and ridiculing them and the message they had received. And yet, despite these things going against them, God was doing an amazing work in them and through them. And here in the rest of chapter 2, Paul speaks about how he is so thankful to God for the church in Thessalonica. And he specifically notes the resources of God that God had given to the church in order to help them through this difficult season that they were in. These were resources that would help them as they continue to grow in their faith, as they continue to mature in the Lord. They are resources that are an important part of every church that desires to grow and mature through the various seasons that we face. The title of our study this morning is going to be Divine Resources for Perseverance. Okay? Divine Resources for Perseverance. We all rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word. I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's fine. Just want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. So Paul continues his letter to the Thessalonians with the following in verse 13 of chapter 2. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in the truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, 
became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. We'll stop right there. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up and to allow it just to minister to us and to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that your word is living, Lord, and it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it could divide down into the just very intense of the heart, Lord. And Lord, we want to just lay bare our hearts this morning and be vulnerable and, and be open to what you want to say and what you want to do in and through us. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us that you will complete the work that you began in us. And so, Lord, we understand that uh, while we are here, Lord, on this earth, we are in incomplete work and you're still molding and shaping. And so, Lord, we want to be moldable and shapeable this morning that you might have your way in us. And so lead us and guide us through your word. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Paul, he opens up this section by mentioning the church in Thessalonica, how he and his companions are constantly thanking God for this church, how they never stop thanking God for them. The church in Thessalonica may have been wondering, what did they have to be so thankful for, right? I mean, they were experiencing a really difficult time. They were going through a, a, a tough time, a challenging time. People were persecuting them. Uh, people were calling into question Paul and his ministry. They were such a young, a new church. They were babes in Christ, and they had no leader to really, really help them grow, to help them mature. In, in this chapter, I see Paul highlighting three divine resources that the church in Thessalonica had that were reason to give thanks. They were resources that would allow them to continue to grow to continue to mature and to eventually overcome this season of persecution. These resources God had given to them were resources that would allow them to persevere, to not give up in the face of trials and difficulties and all the other things that were seemingly working against them. These same resources God made available to the church in Thessalonica are even made available to us as well. And so as we go through and, and note these resources... We'll also look to make application as to how these resources can be used to help us persevere, to help us not to give up, uh, to help us to continue to grow and to mature into all that the Lord has for us. And so with that, we'll turn our attention to the first divine resource that Paul mentioned in verse 13. Read it again with me. It says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. We'll stop right there. So as already noted, Paul, he opens up by once again reminding the church how they are constantly in, prayer, in their prayers, how they are constantly thanking God for them. In chapter 1, Paul wrote similarly how he and his companions gave thanks to God always for them, uh, remembering without ceasing their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. In fact, the divine resources that we're going to be highlighting this morning will be connected with their work of faith and their uh, labor of love and their patience of hope in the Lord. These things Paul was so thankful to God for. Now, the first divine resource that Paul mentions is spoken of here in verse 13. It is the word of God. When he came to them, Paul preached to them the gospel message, the word of God. Now, the gospel message, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For the church in Thessalonica, they were founded upon the word of God. They received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, as Paul stated in chapter 1. But we have to understand that the same gospel message that saved them is also the same gospel message that would enable them to live for Christ and endure sufferings to persevere through this affliction. It wasn't just that now that they had the gospel and they didn't need it anymore. No, this gospel would continue to strengthen them to persevere. Paul mentioned that this church received the word of God, which they heard from Paul and his companions. The Greek word for received is the word paralambano. It means to take with oneself or to join to oneself. The idea is that the word of God became part of who they are or who they were. It was knit together into the very fabric of their being. It was taken in and it just became part of them. Hearing the word of God is important, okay? Coming to church and, and listening to the word, listening to maybe you have an audio Bible or perhaps taking in a podcast of one of your favorite Bible teachers or preachers, that's a good thing, okay? We need to be those who hear the word of God. But I want to remind you of what Jesus had to say about hearing. Jesus often warned people about the wrong kind of hearing. <clears throat> Excuse me. He warned people saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, most of the people Jesus was speaking to when he gave these warnings had physical ears, right? We know and understand that, right? So Jesus wasn't necessarily saying we have to simply have ears to hear, but that we would have discerning ears, okay? ears that didn't just hear, but understood what was being said and responded appropriately. Jesus warned, take heed what you hear in Mark chapter 4, verse 24. When you take in and you hear the word of God, do you ever stop to contemplate exactly what it is that you are hearing? This is God's inspired word, God's love letter written to us, inspired by God and written by holy men, moved by the Holy Spirit. It was written to us and for us. Do you understand the weight of what you hold in your lap? Okay? It is a miracle of God, His very Word that is given to us. I've used this analogy before, and so if you've heard it, I ask you to excuse me. But if after church today, we all started to leave and went into the parking lot, and an asteroid from heaven came bursting through the sky and landed in our parking lot, and attached to it was a metallic envelope that had the words on it, to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni, from God, open and read next week. How many of you would come with excitement and anticipation to hear God's letter to us next week? Okay. How many of you would spend the next week telling everybody you know about how you are going to open a letter from God written just for you? How many of you would make sure that nothing would get in the way of you coming to hear that letter from God? And we may think, wow, that would, that would be amazing. There's, there's no way I'd miss that. But let me tell you something. The Bible that you hold in your hands is no less a miracle than an asteroid from heaven with an attached note from God is. Okay? This is God's holy word given to us. Do you know what it is? that you hold in your hands. Jesus warned us. He also warned not only about what you hear, but he also warned, take heed how you hear in Luke 8, 18. How do you hear the word of God? Do you take it in attentively and expectantly? When you hear the word of God, are you doing so with a heart and a mind that is open and ready to receive all that God has to say to you? You know, I know not everybody does this, so I'm not trying to pick on people or highlight people, but I love to see people here at Calvary and other churches, wherever you go, okay, that come with pen and paper in hand, okay, or people that have their notes app opened up on their phone or tablet. It tells me something, okay, assuming you're not doodling or playing games on your phone, okay, 
But it tells me something, okay? It tells me that they, those people, they're expecting to hear something important, okay? And they're expecting to hear something that's worth writing down, something that's worth noting. It tells me that they are coming ready to receive all that the Spirit of God desires to say to them and to His church. When you come to hear the Word of God, how do you do so? Do you expect to hear from God? Are you ready to receive from Him? Are you ready to take what you receive and apply it to your life and allow it to mold and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ? Or are you more of a careless hearer of the Word? You come in and you hear the Word, but it goes in one ear and out the other. Or you take it in and you listen, but the second you step out of the church, you immediately forget it and you start thinking about what's for lunch and all the other important things that will fill the rest of your day. You see, it isn't enough just to come to church and check a box and say, we listen to the message. Jesus wants us to hear the word, but he also warns us about what we hear and how we hear it. He wants us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word to take God's word and receive it to ourselves, to take it in and make it part of who we are, that it would be knit into the very fabric of who we are, just like it was for the church in Thessalonica. Well, Paul also, also speaks of how they welcomed the word of God, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now, in English, the words receive and welcome, they can be used somewhat interchangeably, right? For us, uh, they basically mean the same thing. You receive something or you welcome something. But it's actually, in the Greek, the word welcome is different from the word receive. And the word in the Greek uh, for welcome, it carries with it the idea of receiving something favorably, to delight in receiving something, or to appreciate something that's been given to oneself. The church in Thessalonica didn't just take it in, uh, take in the Word of God and make it part of who they were. They took it in and they cherished it. Okay, they delighted in it. They greatly appreciated it. Why? Well, our text tells us because they understood it to be the very Word of God and that it was truth. You know, in today's world, truth is said to be in the eye of the beholder. We have allowed ourselves to believe that truth is fluid, okay? that truth is, is relative, that what's truth to you may not be truth to another person, that, that everything is relative. But that simply is not the case. That is not true. There is truth. God's word is truth. John chapter 17, verse 17 states, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. It is absolute. When Jesus was brought before Pilate, Pilate questioned him about his coming and his kingdom. And Jesus responded, he said, for this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. You guys remember how Pilate responded? He mockingly dismissed Jesus's words and he simply questioned, what is truth? See, people think that uh, moral relativism is something that's new. It's not, okay? It's been around for a long time. <laughs> Many people today think they can simply balk at the idea of truth like Pilate did, but that isn't the case. God's word is truth. You know what else is truth? Jesus Christ is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you guys may have seen or noticed this before in your own studies, but the correlation between Jesus and the Word of God is astounding. Jesus is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. Okay? Jesus is the living Word, and God's Word, our Bible, is the written Word. Both are described as bread. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said that I am the bread of life. Both are light. Psalm 119, verse 105 declares, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Both are eternal. Jesus Christ is the eternal God in the flesh. 
And the word of God lives and abides forever. It will endure forever, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23, as well as verse 25. The word of God and Jesus are clo- so closely related that the manner in which you love and appreciate Jesus ought to correlate to your love and appreciation for God's word. You know, we often say or speak about how we love Jesus, right? And we sing songs about how we love Jesus and how we are so thankful for Jesus. And that's great, and that's wonderful, and we should love Jesus, and we should declare that, okay? And we should sing about it, and we should be thankful for Jesus. But do we love his word? And are we thankful for his word? The way a Christian appreciates God's word will be in direct correlation to how he appreciates God's son, for they are the same. Jesus is the word of God become flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. Okay? You can take the word out and put in Jesus, and it's going to be the exact same thing. Okay? In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. He was with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, okay? And Jesus was God. Looking back at our text, we see that Paul, he also mentioned how the Word of God was effectively working in them and all who believe. That phrase, effectively works, is actually one word in the Greek. It's the word energeo. And it's, we can almost kind of hear it in the English. It's where our English word energy comes from. It speaks of the energy, uh, the power, the might to make something work. Here it is speaking of the power of God's word to work in us. You see, God's word, it has the power to touch hearts and to transform lives. And here we see a very important element to the resource of God's Word. You see, we need to appropriate God's Word to ourselves. We need to take it into ourselves. And we also need to appreciate God's Word, the gift that it is to us. But we also must apply God's Word to our lives. If we take it in and we appreciate it, but we never apply it, we never allow it to mold and shape us, to change us, we're missing the mark. We need to do all of these things with the Word of God to appropriate it to ourselves, to appreciate it, and to apply it. All are part of the necessary necessary response to God's Word. And all of these things were part of how the Thessalonians responded to God's Word. And they give to us an excellent example to follow of how they received the Word and welcomed the Word and allowed it to work in them, changing them. From the inside out. Well, let's continue in our text. We'll note the next resource God had given to the church in Thessalonica to help them persevere. Read verses 14 through 16 with me. It says, says, excuse me, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not Please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. We'll stop right there. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul spoke of how the church in Thessalonica had become followers of Paul and uh, his companions, how they also became followers of the Lord. Okay? But here we see that they have also become followers or imitators. It's actually the same Greek word, okay? Though we use two different English words, followers and imitators. It's the same in the Greek, okay? Of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. And this brings to light the second divine resource God had given to the church in Thessalonica. They not only had the word of God, but they also had the church of God to help them, to encourage them, and to come alongside them. The church in Thessalonica was experiencing difficulties, persecutions, and trials, and challenges, and they shouldn't have been shocked by this. For when we hear the word of God, and when we take it in 
to our very being, and we appreciate it, and we cherish it. When we start to apply it to our lives so that it creates lasting change, listen, it will inevitably result in people treating you differently. And we may have friends, we may have family members that begin to mock us, or they begin to shun us, or even I know some Japanese who have been disowned from their family because of their faith in God. This is normal. This is to be expected. Jesus said this would happen. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stated, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In John's Gospel, Jesus proclaimed, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, Paul understood this truth about persecution. He experienced it himself on numerous occasions. He wrote a long list of the various trials and afflictions and persecutions that he faced because of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and time won't allow us to look them over, but there's a lot of them, okay? He went through a lot, okay? More than what uh, you and I could probably even imagine. Okay? And so he's listed it out there. You can check it out, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'd like. But he wrote to Timothy, trying to encourage and comfort him regarding the difficulty he, difficulties he was facing. He was a young pastor. And he wrote, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see, if you allow God's word to work in your life and to produce a change in your life, you will suffer persecution. It is a promise from the Lord. Okay? Now, it isn't one that we may like. It isn't one that we like to claim, like, that's a, oh, that's my life verse, you know, 2 Timothy 3.12, you know. No, nobody does that, okay? But it's nonetheless a promise from God. These Thessalonians were experiencing the same sort of trials and afflictions that the churches in Judea were experiencing. For just as the Jews in Jerusalem were being persecuted by their own countrymen, so too were the Thessalonians being persecuted by their own people, both the Jews in Thessalonica and the Greeks there as well. They were all coming against them. Paul wrote these words to encourage them and to comfort them. What they were experiencing wasn't something they were being singled out for from everyone else. They experienced the same kind of persecution others had for their faith in Christ. They didn't have to worry or wonder if they had done something wrong or bad or, or perhaps that they weren't doing things right. You know, there can be a tendency to think to ourselves that, you know, we must be doing something wrong if things aren't working out and we seem to be constantly coming against opposition. And let me tell you something, that's not always the truth. In fact, it may be the opposite. If things are constantly going smooth for you and you aren't ever experiencing any sort of trials or difficulties for your faith, it may be an indication of something that's a little off. For we should experience opposition. We should experience trials and difficulties. That is the norm for those who follow Jesus Christ. That is what's promised to those who follow Jesus if you're going through difficulties and trials and seem to be facing all sorts of opposition related to your walk with the Lord, it could be an indicator that you're headed in the right direction, okay, that you are doing the right things. And so don't give up. Keep moving forward in the Lord as He leads and as He guides. The church in Judea would then become an encouragement to them. They had gone through the same thing. They were not alone. You see, when we go through trials and persecutions and afflictions, God comes alongside us and comforts us, and He leads us through those times and seasons, and we grow through them. 
He comforts us in all our tribulation, as 2 Corinthians states, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. God has given us the church that we may be able to come alongside uh, one another and comfort one another and encourage one another, that we may comfort as we go through similar life experiences. We are able to minister to people in the same manner and way that God ministered to us. We get to share our life experiences with one another and share our testimonies of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Even in the most challenging of circumstances, we can attest and stand up and say, God saw me through that, and he's going to see you through that too, brother. He's going to see you through that too, sister. The church in Jerusalem experienced great persecution from their own countrymen, but what came of that persecution was God spreading the gospel to the rest of the world. You see, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, God had told his, his disciples to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay? But they kind of delayed in getting that going. If you're familiar with the book of Acts and you read through it, okay, they tarried in Jerusalem for quite a while. And it wasn't until the persecution in Jerusalem began to get so severe that they then decided to spread out. And when they did, they took the gospel message with them. Acts 8.1 informs us that at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, where? Judea and Samaria. Where did God tell them to go? Judea and Samaria. They hung out in Jerusalem, and so what happened? Persecution came. They scattered to Judea and Samaria. You see, Acts 1.8 didn't happen until Acts 8.1 took place, and the church felt the great persecution against them that scattered them to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to places like the seaport of Thessalonica. God used the persecution of the church in Jerusalem to spread his gospel message to impact the kingdom of heaven. And the church in Thessalonica could take similar comfort in knowing that God could and would use their persecution to spread his gospel message even further, to have an even greater impact upon the kingdom of God. Now, in verses 15 and 16, Paul speaks about the Jews in Judea and their opposition against the gospel. He writes how the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets, in addition to persecuting Paul and his companions. Now, when Paul speaks of the Jews here, he isn't lumping all the Jews together. We know and understand that the main opposition came from the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, and the like. They were the ones that came against Jesus and his ministry. Okay? Much of what we read in the gospel accounts is how many of the Jews gladly received Jesus. Jesus was followed by great multitudes of Jews who believed. So this isn't Paul trying to put blame on the entire Jewish nation for what happened to Jesus. Some crazy people out there will try to say, it's all the Jews' fault, you know, that Jesus was crucified, and they hate the Jews, and they persecute the Jews. Okay? That's just baloney. Okay? Don't believe any of that kind of garbage. All right? This is not what Paul's saying, okay? He is not trying to put blame on the entire Jewish nation, okay? We know that the Jews, the religious leaders, were definitely a big part of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, okay? And we might want to put blame on them, but they were not alone. The Romans also played their part. Pontius Pilate was there, okay? They too were responsible for the death of Jesus, so it wasn't just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. In fact, while we're at it, we may as well throw ourselves in there as well, because we were partly responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary, and he gave up his life as a sacrifice for our sins, right? He, he died in our place. He paid our price. We are just as responsible for Jesus dying on the cross as the next person. The scriptures affirm that we all sin and have fallen short of the glory of God, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And because we are all sinners and Jesus went to the cross to pay the debt for the sins of all humanity, then we each played a part 
in his death. We are all responsible for Jesus going to the cross for the sins of humanity. It wasn't just the Jews or the Romans. It was all of us. We see here as well that the opposition of the Jews was not pleasing to God, it says. God was not pleased when he saw Jewish brothers and sisters coming against each other and persecuting one another. And I think this ought to be received as a warning for us, you guys. We must realize, too, that God is not pleased when we come against our own brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are all part of the same body. Okay, there's only one body of Christ. 1 Corinthians tells us, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. When we churn our noses at other churches or we badmouth other churches and other believers because they don't do things the same way we do, that is not pleasing to the Lord. God is not pleased when we come against one another because we're on the same team. We're all part of the body of Christ. And when we come against one another, we only end up harming ourselves. We only end up persecuting the body of Christ of which we are part of. And so don't do it. <laughs> Who cares if they do things a little bit different from us? Okay? Who cares if they wear suits and ties or, or fancy robes? Okay? And we think it's weird. They look at us and think we're weird. Okay, We are. Who cares if they only like to sing hymns or if they don't use instruments at all in their worship or if they use too many instruments? Who cares if they're more demonstrative in their faith than we are or if they only read the King James Version of the Bible or if they believe in the gifts of the Spirit or they don't believe in them? Who cares if they're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib? It doesn't matter. If they agree upon the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith, that Jesus is the Son of God and that He's equal to God, that He lived a perfect sinless life and that He laid down that life upon the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty for our sins and that He subsequently rose from the dead defeating sin and they confess that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in God, well then guess what? They're part of the body of Christ. And we shouldn't oppose one another or come against one another. Different doesn't mean wrong. Every part of the body is a needed part, and we do harm to ourselves. And we displease God when we come against each other. Paul also mentions how the persecution from the Jews was in direct opposition to the salvation of others. Paul and his companions wanted to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, but the Jews opposed that. They didn't want to see Gentiles saved. Now, we have to realize something about the Jews of that day and their relationship with the Gentiles. Despite popular opinion, the Jews were not opposed to the Gentiles coming to faith in God. They proselytized Gentiles during that time. Okay? We've got examples of people, Gentiles, who were proselytized. They became Jewish by faith, obviously not nationality, but by faith people were turning to Judaism. Okay? The big concern amongst most Jewish religious leaders was the thought that Gentiles could become believers in God without first becoming Jewish. Okay? The Jews believed that the only way to become a true believer in the Lord and to be accepted by God was to become Jewish, okay? to become a proselyte to Judaism. But Paul and his companions were going out telling Gentiles that they didn't need to convert to Judaism in order to be accepted by God, that they only had to put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, and they would be accepted. And so this was completely contrary to the Jewish religious leaders' teachings and traditions. And so they opposed Paul and the other apostles. They did, uh, what they did was they opposed the salvation of others because it didn't fit with their own traditions and their own beliefs. Paul described how their opposite is also equally true. That receiving the gospel brings salvation. And so we are left with a choice. We can oppose the gospel and bring God's wrath upon ourselves. Or we can receive the gospel and bring God's salvation upon ourselves. But there is no middle ground in Christianity. It is either one or the other. 
You are either for Christ or you're against him. You are either gather with him or you scatter abroad, according to Jesus' own words found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. We must choose Christ. You cannot remain neutral. You cannot remain undecided. If you've not chosen to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are in opposition to him and you are storing up wrath against yourself. That is the truth. A wrath that God will pour out in his perfect timing. When that is, I don't know. But my encouragement to you would be do not delay. Respond to the gospel while you still have the opportunity to do so. Let's look to our final section this morning, verses 17 through 20. We'll wrap up our time this morning. Okay, there's one more divine resource the church in Thessalonica had to help them persevere. Read with me verses 17 through 20, and then we'll go back through it. It says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In verses 17 and 18, Paul talks about his absence from them and his desire to be with them. When he writes about being taken away from them, he's referencing the fact that he had to escape the city rather quickly because of the persecution and the uproar that was created by some envious Jews in the area, and they ended up fleeing under the cover of night. We've talked about this already. The word he used here is very descriptive. The phrase, having been taken away, in my New King James Version, is actually one word in the Greek, and it's only used this one time in all the New Testament, okay? The word in the Greek is aporphanidzo. The word comes from the Greek preposition apo, which means from, and orphanos, which speaks of an orphan. Okay? And so the picture this word paints is that of someone being orphaned from their family. It could speak of a child being separated from their parents or parents being separated from their children. We know that Paul felt and he acted like a spiritual parent to these believers in Thessalonica. Last week we looked at and we noticed how he described himself and, and his, uh, how he nourished them like a nursing mother nourishes her own baby and how he protected and provided for them, speaking truth into their life like a father does his own children. The fact that he couldn't be there with them was something that was tearing him up. He felt like he had been stripped away from his own children, and he desperately longed to be reunited with them. He knew that they were struggling, and they were going through tough times. And as a parent, he had that weight upon him. He wanted to be there. Those of you who are, who are parents, you know, like if your kids are, are hurting, and yet you can't get to them, how, how much that just weighs on you. And that's what Paul's heart was. Paul described this absence from them as a short time. And this leads me to the last divine resource God had given to the church. He had given them the word of God. He had given them the church of God. But here the idea is that he's given them a future with God, okay? a future with God. Paul wanted to let them know that this was a short time, that this was temporary, and that he eventually finishes off the chapter by looking to the eternal and their presence with Jesus Christ. Though Paul was absent from them in body, his heart was right there with them. His heart longed to be with them. He greatly desired to see them face to face, to be able to comfort them and to care for them. In fact, he tried to come time and again. Multiple times he tried to make the trip back to Thessalonica, but each time he tried, he was hindered from doing so, we're told. And Paul says that it was Satan himself who was hindering him from coming back to them. Now, to me, as I read that, I think it begs the question of how Satan did that. How did Satan hinder him? But Paul doesn't give us the specifics of how Satan did that. It could have been through any number of ways. Perhaps illness struck Paul or some of his companions. Perhaps funds were tight. They couldn't afford to go. Maybe other things kept popping up, preventing them from coming and leaving where they were at. Perhaps simply the way was blocked. 
That seems to be the indication based upon the wording that's used here, the word hindered. It literally describes the work of breaking up the road and putting up obstacles in order to impede one's progress. This is actually a military maneuver used to impede oncoming forces. You'd see the way in which the opposition was planning on traveling, and you would go and you would break up the roadway, and you would put up all sorts of obstacles to detour them or to reroute them to the area that you would rather them go. Now, before we move on, I'd like to note a few simple things here about Satan's work of hindering Paul and his desire to return to Thessalonica. First of all, you guys, I think it's really important that we know that Satan is in fact real. Okay? He is described as the God, little g, okay? God of this age who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience in the book of Ephesians. He's referred to as being like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour by Peter in his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 8. And so make no doubt about it, Satan is real. Okay? But another important thing for us to realize is that while Satan is real, he is not equal to God. He is a created being. He is one of the angels that God created in heaven, but he became prideful and he tried to lift himself up into the place of God. And because of his actions, he was kicked out of heaven along with a third of the angels. These fallen angels we more commonly refer to as demons. And let me tell you, they too are real. But it's important to note that Satan is not God's counterpart. God has no equals. Okay, Satan is not God's adversary. Okay, he is not divine in nature. He is not omnipotent or omniscient. He is limited in what he can do, which leads me to another important thing we must realize, and that has to do with the fact that his leash is only as long as God allows it to be, meaning there isn't anything that Satan can do that God isn't aware of and that God does not first give the okay on. We see this example in the life of Job. Satan could do nothing to Job without God's knowing and without God's allowance. And that means that this hindrance of Satan's was something that God permitted to happen. God allowed Satan to keep Paul from returning to Thessalonica. And this brings up something I find quite fascinating. Do you guys realize and understand that many Bible scholars believe that the letter of 1 Thessalonians was the first letter that Paul wrote to any of the churches? Okay? There's some debate. Some say maybe it was Galatians, but a lot of people believe 1 Thessalonians, first letter Paul ever wrote. Okay? Paul wrote this letter while in Corinth because he couldn't go see the Thessalonians face-to-face -face himself. You see, if he would have been permitted to go to Thessalonica, we may not have, have, we may not have the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, we may not have much of the New Testament. If this hindrance to get to Thessalonica was the catalyst to get Paul to start writing letters to the various churches throughout the area that he longed to be with but couldn't be for whatever reason, then it could be that if without it, Paul may have never developed the habit of sitting down and writing letters, and we would be without half of the books of the New Testament. And this reminds me of a very important principle that I think we all need to understand. Okay? When one door closes, we must believe and trust that God has a different, better door that he wants us to go through. God used this hindrance of Satan to get Paul to sit down and write the letter that we have before us, and potentially to write all the letters of Paul that we have before us. There's 26 letters in the New Testament. 13 of them are attributed to Paul, half of them. I wonder if Satan regretted hindering Paul from going to Thessalonica, because it looks like God used it for his glory and the greater good of the kingdom of heaven. In verses 19 and 20, Paul speaks about how the church in Thessalonica is their hope, their joy, and their crown of rejoicing. 
When Paul and his companions thought about the church in Thessalonica being in the presence of Christ at his coming, it was more than they could ever dream of or ask for. Paul's all was in the church's future with the Lord in heaven. It didn't matter what they were going through now. It didn't matter that they were being persecuted, that he was hindered from going to be with them. Those things were temporary. Okay? The most important thing to them was the fact that they were going to be with Jesus for all of eternity. Their focus was upon the eternal and not the temporary. They found their hope, their joy, their rejoicing in knowing that they were going to be with Jesus forever. And John writes in his third epistle, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And as a spiritual parent to the church in Thessalonica, I think Paul would agree with John that he had no greater joy than knowing that those in Thessalonica would one day be welcomed into the presence of Jesus Christ where they would walk with him for the rest of eternity. And one of the keys, you guys, to overcoming trials and difficulties and persecutions is to get our eyes off of our temporary circumstances and to place our gaze upon the Lord and our glorious future that we have awaiting us. It was Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. May our hope and focus be upon the eternal upon us one day entering into the presence of the Lord and worshiping Him for all of our days. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, Lord. We thank You that Your Word is powerful, Lord, that Your Word has the power to touch hearts and to change lives. Lord, we want to receive Your Word into ourselves, to make it part of who we are, Lord. We want to appreciate Your Word. Lord, we want to take Your Word and just cherish it for what it is, understanding the magnitude of what we have before us, Your very Word, Your love letter given to us. Lord, I pray that we would be those who apply Your Word to our lives, that we might allow Your Word to mold us and to shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to encourage one another as the church. Lord, that we would look to our fellow brothers and sisters and let them know of your goodness and your faithfulness, how you've worked in our hearts and lives, that they may be encouraged and comforted going through similar difficulties and similar challenges that you brought us through. Lord, I pray that we would have our focus upon the eternal. Lord, that our eyes would not be focused upon the temporary circumstances and trials and difficulties that we have uh, from day to day, but Lord, that we would have an eternal focus and perspective, understanding that these things are nothing but light afflictions, temporary. Lord, and we have a glorious future awaiting us with you that will last for all of eternity. We thank you for that, and we thank you that you've given us these things, that we might persevere during these tough times. You haven't left us without these tools and resources. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.